Well, I've decided to start the new year with a new series. Uh, I'm gonna, I have a series of, of Wednesday night lectures that I, I gave in the past. And I've often thought, I need to do that again. It's been a while. I actually checked. It's been 17 years since I last gave it. So I, I, and I, I'll refresh it a little bit. But it, it's valuable material. And then let's go to the Lord and ask his blessing. Father, we now consider uh, the wonderful topic of covenant theology. We know how rich it is, how it, it deepens. And, and it's, a, it's an anchor for our faith that we would understand your ways. And we pray your blessing on our study tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, the first lesson tonight is going to be, what is covenant theology? Uh, first of all, the importance of covenant theology. And you probably know, you, probably, you hear the word covenant. It's one of those words that Presbyterians use. It's a reformed word, which it most certainly is. Uh, it's actually really important to our faith to our understanding of God and his ways and our relationship to him. I say here it's not just vague Christian or Reformed jargon. And I say that because we have a tendency to that. I remember some years ago I was given a bag of covenant coffee beans. And I'm like, okay, this is not a means of grace. The, uh, it may seem like a means of grace, but we just, we have covenant schools, we have covenant family, we have covenant this. And what happens is it just becomes this, this jargon. Actually, the Bible's teaching on God covenanting with his people. And what does that mean is of great importance. Spurgeon said, the doctrine of the covenants is the key of theology. Uh, that is not hyperbole. There's other things that are very important too, but it, it's the, the organizing structure of the Bible. It's a, Peter Golding says this, the term covenant is a biblical one, and any theology which regards the Bible as its canon of faith must inevitably recognize the frequency with which the divine provision of salvation is construed in covenantal forms. Well, that's right. The Bible talks about covenants all the time. The very structure by which covenants, salvation comes to us is a covenant structure. Palmer Robertson says the covenant idea provides the key to understanding the unity and diversity found in Scripture it is a divine initiative represented in the covenants that structure biblical theology. I like to say this. If, you're, if someone, someone did, didn't know anything about Christianity and they said, tell me about the Bible, what's like the organization of it, you'd say, well, it's New Covenant and New Testament and Old Testament. By the way, that's, that's the Latin testamentum translating the Greek word diatheke, which is normally translated covenant. The Bible is the Old Covenant, the New Covenant. That's the, the physical uh, structure. But if, if he said, no, give me the actual structure of it, and you you'd start reciting Bible books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, so on and so forth. But well, what about the what about the history? That's what the Bible. You know, the Bible presents a, an inspired revelation, a, a true revelation of the history of the world, and that history is organized covenantally. I think about years ago now, I was on a plane with a young woman. She was a Jewish woman, a very serious Orthodox Jew. And she was getting ready to get married. And she said, what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. She goes, maybe you can give me some biblical, some marriage advice. And so I, I said, sure. I gave her some. She said, that's all from the book of Genesis. And I said, well, yeah. I mean, and she says, what do Christians believe? And I'm like, oh, my word, how much time do I have? Uh, and I began by saying to her, we believe that God made a covenant with our father, Adam. 
forbidding him to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good. She said, we believe that too. And and the, the story, the history that reveals the theology of God's saving grace is covenantal in structure. God's main means of relating with his creature, that means is by way of covenant. So it's a really important theme. Uh, so what is covenant theology? It is an understanding of the Bible in terms of God's covenants with man. As I just said, it's the Bible's own system of organization. And what it allows us to do is it allows us to understand biblically the way there's unity and diversity in the Bible. Um, you know, you read an Old Testament passage particularly, and it's very helpful if you understand the way it does and does not relate to you. Uh, you know, there's passages in, in 1 Samuel uh, requiring that you slay all the Amalekites. And if somebody moves in next door with the unfortunate last name Amalek, the Bible is not commanding you to take a chainsaw and to slaughter them in their sleep. And, uh, and, but, but there is relevance to you, but what is that relevance? How do we understand the way that what the Old Testament is saying in a different covenantal context, how is it speaking to us in our new context? It allows us to handle the unity and diversity of Scripture. Now, covenant theology is kind of an enterprise that is in contrast with dispensational theology. Dispensational theology is another, a, a different Christian, evangelical understanding of the nature of the Old Testament to the New Testament, Israel to the church, and those sorts of issues. And we are in striking disagreement. I will say that the 20th century in America was more or less ruled by dispensationalism. I think there's historic anomalies that account for that. But um, but it's actually a historically rare thing. Uh, covenant theology, we would, and we, we will admit, we don't, I'm, not a, I'm not on the war path with dispensational Christians, even though they may be somewhat on the warpath against us. But we admit the fact that there are, there are some striking differences. And I would say the number one difference is this, that we have a fundamental view of the, uh, of the, the coherence of the whole Bible. We see that the Old Testament and the New Testament are organically linked. We see a fundamental continuity in the Bible's message of salvation, uh, of God's dealing with man, although we certainly note some discontinuities. It, there, it was different under the Old Covenant in some meaning ways. Whereas dispensationalism sees a fundamental discontinuity between the New Testament and the Old Testament. A fundam- uh, the, the, really, the two chief tenets of dispensational theology are that all Bible passages must be translated literally. And that's just not a wise hermeneutic in our view. There's portions of the Bible that that's not the proper reading strategy. And so there is a use of symbols in the Old Testament and the New Testament for that reason. That, that, you know, when, in, when Revelation 13 talks about the beast arising from the sea, that's not a preview of the new Godzilla versus King Kong movie. There is symbolism, and, and, and a right understanding is not necessarily literal, but they have this literal hermeneutic. But they also believe that Israel and the church are eternally different enterprises. 
That God's agenda, he had an agenda for Israel, he has an agenda for the church in the original version of dispensationalism. And because they're good Bible people, they've been improving in some important ways. But the original Schofield Bible said, in the Old Testament, you were saved by works. In the New Testament, you're saved by faith. The way of salvation was different. Now, that is, we're going to say, that is false. And so as we're, they will see, say, Israel, God had a plan for Israel. He has another plan, a separate plan for the church, and those plans they don't intersect at any point. Covenant theology is going to say what, what, what Paul says, that the church is the Israel of God. As Paul says at the end of Galatians, to you, to the church, even the Israel of God. I, I've often pointed out to dispensational friends, not that I have many uh, anymore, but um, that when you get to the Revelation 22, the eternal city, the, 12, the foundation are the 12 tribes of Israel, and the 12 gates are the 12 apostles. Actually, it's the other way. The foundations are the 12 apostles, and the 12 gates are the tribes of Israel. That ain't a picture of discontinuity. When the two combine for the end times, eternal age of glory, dwelling of God with his people, that's not saying there's two separate agendas. And so I don't want to dwell on it too much. But yes, covenant theology is in disagreement fundamentally with some of the teaching of dispensationalism. Now, many of you would have grown up in dispensationalism. Uh, and so that's going to come out a little. It's not what I'm really doing, but it's going to come out. Covenant theology relates God's promises and commands to us in terms of our covenant relationship to God. Uh, a good example is going to be Ephesians 6.1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. And the question is, and it's technia, it's little children, obey your parents in the Lord. Why are these little children who presumably have not made profession of faith, why are they being commanded in the Lord? Well, because of covenant theology. And so covenant is how we relate the promises and commands of the Bible to individually, individuals. So where does covenant theology come from? And the answer is the Bible. And I could have given a lot of different references. But this is kind of this language that you, you get used to in the Bible. One of the great covenant promises, Genesis 17, 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will be your God and the God of your offspring after you. That, that whole language assumes a covenant mode a covenant structure of our relationship with God and his relationship to us. Exodus 2.24 and 3.6. This is uh, Moses. God heard Israel's groaning. And why did God save them? Because he remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And so God remembers his covenants and the promises that he made, and they endure to his people. Uh, in Mary's song, the Magnificat, when she's becoming aware of the implications of the virgin conception of the Messiah, she praises God in covenantal language. Blessed be the God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his, his people to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. And so... The, the meaning of Christ and his coming is biblically set in terms of biblical covenants. Uh, Hebrews 13 to 20, now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep by the blood 
of the eternal covenant. You know, you, he didn't have to say that. And in other places, the Bible wouldn't use that language. You know, now may God who loves you, he sent Jesus to die for you, may he do this. But the writer of Hebrews says, but he did so by the blood of the eternal covenant. So this, the, the Bible mandates covenant thinking. Covenant theology also comes from the early church. It comes from the Bible and it comes from the early church. You know, the second century, I have to say, I love the second century. It's a fascinating century because you have the, uh, the, the, you have the apostolic age, which, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the apostles die in the sixties. The apostle John continues on. We're not so sure about some of the other ones, but by the end of the century, all the apostles are gone. And there's no doubt that the church, the, we call it the apostolic church, that they had a sense of the Bible. They had collections of the Bible. When you get those first letters from, you know, Clement and people like that, they're referencing the Bible as scripture. But now, by the blessing of the Holy Spirit, the church is going to reflect upon that teaching, which is in the New Testament along with the Old Testament. And they place a strong emphasis on the covenants. And covenant theology, rooted ultimately in the scripture, is also going to be historically grounded in the church fathers. Uh, this is a, the epistle of Barnabas, which is a, I'm going to say, mid-second century document. He says the old covenant was broken in order that the covenant of the beloved Jesus might be sealed upon our hearts. Now, my only point there is to show that the, the early church was very covenantal in its thinking. Justin Martyr, uh, he argued that Jesus was the promised Messiah of the old covenant and that he noted the difference between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace. He dies 156, something like that. Irenaeus of Lyon, towards the end of the second century. He employs covenants to structure his theology. He's the one who divides the scripture into the Old Testament and New Testament. Uh, the, uh, the diatheke means covenant, Latinus testamentum. Um, and he outlines covenant theology. Now what's interesting is, that the covenant perspective did not endure strongly after the patristic age. I'm I'm sure some of our church historians would give us a detailed perspective. But you have a very strong covenant theology in the 2nd and 3rd century, and then other issues come to the fore, other controversies. Uh, Certainly the Arian controversy becomes the main one, the nature of Christ, the deity of Christ. And when you get to the medieval era, you don't see a lot of covenant theology, but you certainly did among the, uh, among the church fathers until the Protestant Reformation, which is not surprising because the, the Protestant Reformation comes from the Bible. It's the, it's the reading of the Bible. It's the, it's the dissemination of the Bible. It's biblical preaching and biblical theology. And so Martin Luther is going to highlight the law-gospel dichotomy. Uh, if you have Lutheran friends, they want to talk about law gospel, which I don't think, I did. A, I think one of our recent Ask the Pastors, I was asked about that. I don't think it's the most helpful structure, but it's going in that direction. Uh, Holdrick Zwingli, he contrasts the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Christ. Zwingli's got pretty early in the Reformation, he's moving pretty strongly, and there's a community of them doing this, in terms of the federal headship of Christ that is covenantal. Heinrich Bullinger then, he advances Zwingli's covenant theology and he emphasizes Genesis 17, I will be your God, the God of your offspring, as the covenant of our salvation. Uh, Calvin, 
Uh, his emphasis is on Trinity more than covenant, but covenant is still key, he says, to salvation history. And he emphasizes God's sovereignty in covenant theology. And then Caspar Olevianus, he applies covenant outside of redemption. He introduces the idea of covenant of works and an external administration of the covenant. My main point there is the covenant theology we know today really begins in the Protestant Reformation and is really the, the reflection of the, we call it the Reformed Scholastics, the generations after the Reformation give us the current form of our covenant theology from the Scripture. Now you get it in both Dutch and Puritan theology. Uh, they both, the, the Dutch Second Reformation and the, and the Puritans from England, emphasized particularly the covenant of works versus the covenant of grace. We believe strongly, and I'm going to talk about this, but we strongly believe that there's a bicovenantal structure that God came to Adam in the Garden of Eden, and he, it was a covenant of works. You know, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, you will surely die. The implication is if you obey by works, you will receive that, that, that eschatological blessing. Well, the problem is he failed. And so the covenant of grace is the remedy to the covenant of works. And it really is the Westminster Confession that starts making this more explicit. There's a lot of background detail. Let me, before I run out of time tonight, let me just jump in then and say, well, what is a covenant? What then is a covenant? I've, I've been helped by O. Palmer Robertson's. Isn't it a blessing to have O. Palmer Robertson still alive? He's on our missions budget. We see him from time to time. Uh, he wrote that great book, The Christ of the Covenants. And he gives this definition a covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. This is a biblical covenant. A biblical covenant, what do you, what do you mean by covenant? Don't, don't just use jargon. Okay. It's a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Let's work through that. A covenant is a bond. It is a mechanism of uniting people. It is the nature of a relationship. It's legal in structure and it's relational in consequence. Uh, now, you have parity con- covenants. People say if you're in a business arrangement and you make a contract, I bet Jacob's made some contracts with suppliers and things like that with your workers. That's a form of covenant. And now the Bible, biblical covenants aren't exactly the same way uh, as contracts because con- our contracts are, they're equal. There's a negotiation. You work these hours, I'll pay you that. But God, God does not sit down to the table with us and say, how would you like to be saved? Uh, but those are, those contracts are forms of covenants. That's my point. They are bonds. They establish the structure of a relationship. Uh, a good example is the, uh, the covenant between Abraham and Abimelech in Genesis 21-27. So Abraham took sheep and oxen and gave them to Abimelech, and the two men made a covenant over the use of the wells at Beersheba. That's a parity covenant between peers. They're working out a contractual relationship. A covenant is a pact. It's a bond. It's a, it's the structure of a relationship. Uh, God's covenants with man are not like that in the sense that he does not negotiate with us. And we'll get to that with sovereignly administered. Uh, but they, a covenant is a bond. And I, I think of marriage. The covenant we're most familiar with is marriage. 
And marriage is both legal and relational. One of the criticisms people have about covenant theology is to say it's all legalistic. It's all duties and obligations, promised blessings. And I go, well, yeah, but it's actually not a problem. And marriage is that way. Uh, a wedding service is a covenant-making service, and it's very legalistic in a positive sense. You come forward and you make public vows and you bind yourself. When I perform a wedding, and I actually don't tell them I'm going to do this because I want there to be a little zing to it. Uh, before I say you may kiss the bride, I take their hands and I raise my ministerial hand and I say, what God has joined together, let no one tear apart. You go, well, that's kind of authoritative. Exactly. But the result of it is the relationship. The marriage and and a healthy male-female love relationship and children is within the structure, the covenantal structure, the legal structure that God gives, provides for the life and the blessing and the love and and the sweetness. Uh, Marriage is a covenant that is legal. Someone says, uh, women will say to me, you know, he says he's committed to me. Uh, My answer is, has he married you yet? Well, no, then he's not committed to you. I mean, I'm not saying he's not, if, if, if marriage is not in the picture, the, 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 the romantic relationship, the, the commitment that's, that's in the Bible to a more romantic relationship is called marriage. He's, just, he's not willing to marry me, but he's committed to me. He's not committed to you. Marriage is the mode of commitment in the Bible to a marriage relationship. By the way, that does not mean you should get married on the first date. But, uh, uh, and that commitment allows the intimacy, the oneness, the sharing. Yes, they are legal, but they are very relational. Uh, and so covenant is a pact. It is an oath bond of some biblical data. Genesis twenty-two seventeen: I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven, as the sands are on the seashore. So God gives a promise within the, the bond of his covenant. Um, and then the people in Exodus, this is Exodus, when the people are at Mount Sinai, there's, a, there's an obligation on their part. It's a relationship. There's a structure to it. This is the Mosaic Covenant. All the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And boy, they were, the Lord remembers that statement. Uh, James Boyce calls covenant a solemn promise confirmed by an oath or a sign. And so it's a bonded, it's, it's a, the bonds of a committed relationship. Uh, There's two kinds of those that we talk about. Some of the covenants in the Bible are called royal grant covenants, where God just gives promises. He doesn't expect, he doesn't, there's nothing in the covenant that requires anything, at least not explicitly. God's covenant with Noah, he doesn't come to Noah and say, here's what you're going to do, here's what I'm going to do. He says, uh, no, here's, I I make a covenant with you, here's what I'm going to do. The covenant with Noah is God's covenant of preservation of history for the sake of the gospel. And the sign is the rainbow. Uh, so some of his covenants are, are, are sheer promises. The Davidic covenant is that way. But there's also this historical background of what's called the sovereign, the, the, the suzerain vassal uh, covenant. In the ancient world, if I conquered you and I became your suzerain, then you came into a covenant relationship with me. We have all kinds of ancient documents showing this. Uh, good old Asher Bannerpol and his library has lots of these sorts of things. And, uh, and there's a covenant made. Okay, I am now your suzerain overlord. 
I will promise to protect you and to give you safety, and you will supply 32 warriors from my army every summer, along with 62 bushels of grain. And if you rebel against me, I will wipe you out and torture you all to death. And then and they would, he would hold out the rod, and they would walk under the rod, and they made a covenant. And so God, that, that mode of relating involved with a suzerain, this is a biblical covenant. God is the Lord. He didn't conquer us. He, he made us. He's the sovereign. We are his people. He makes promises to us. They involve obligations to him. Now, the biblical covenants are not only bonds, but they are blood bonds. Palmer Robertson says they're bonds and bloods. But the meaning of that is it's always life and death. All the biblical covenants are life and death covenants. It's like uh, the princess bride. You know, there's death on the line. You make a covenant with, with God it's a life or death matter. Uh, so Genesis two sixteen to 17, on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And the blessings are life. The curse is death. And these bonds, they promise blessing. Ultimately, the blessing is eschatological life in Christ, eternal life in Christ with the obligations of obedience. Uh, in fact, the, 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 the Hebrew verb, I say cutting a covenant, the Hebrew verb for making a covenant is the verb to cut. You cut a covenant. And so what you would do is that you would, uh, and you get this in Genesis 15, you're going to make a covenant, and so you're going to take animals. Let's say you got some oxen. Usually it's a variety of them, but you got some oxen. You're going to cut them in half, and you're going to separate them. This is pretty... Well, you wouldn't want a long train on your wedding dress for this form of service. I'll, I'll say that. Uh, and they, they separate the animals and the two walk through, you walk through the pieces together. And what you're saying is, if I break this covenant, if I break this vow, let what happened to those animals happen to me. And so the very language of cutting a covenant involves the sanction, the punishment of death. And by the way, the truth is, in the new covenant, the covenant of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ, the sanction for refusing Jesus Christ is eternal death. The blessing is eternal life. Why? Because it's God. He owns us. He's the maker of heaven and earth. Our dealings with him are always a life and death matter. And that's even the language of cutting a covenant um, involves that. So the penalty for breaking God's covenant is death. Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sin. Even the, the remedying of sin involves death. Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for you. Where there's sin, there must be death. The remedy will involve death. And then biblical covenants are sovereignly administered. They're bonds in blood, sovereignly administered. Uh, and this means that the Lord doesn't sit down with you or me and this, people today say, well, I don't want to be saved that way. And I want to say to them, you know, it's God you're talking to. And so he, he doesn't offer you another way. He decides the terms of his... If, if, you, if you're conquered by, you know, Sennacherib, and he gives you that he's your suzerain, he doesn't sit down with you and go, how would you like to be a member of the Assyrian Empire? Oh, you know, I'd like uh, civil liberties. He's going to go, no. 
<laughs> the suzerain establishes the terms of the covenant. And the, 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 the suzerain, the Lord, is the Lord. And so God establishes the, the, the structure, the obligations, the promises, the sanctions of a covenant are established by God because he is the Lord. A covenant, I'll put it this way, covenant making is a function of lordship. When you are the Lord, when you're the owner, when you're the, the sovereign, part of that is that you make the rules. Some of you will say to your, your middle school children, because I, God has given us authority, we therefore make the rules. And, and that's right. God has invested you. As, it's, not, it's, it's a hierarchical relationship between us and our children. And, and of course, we're, in, our, in our case, we're also under God's authority, so our rules should be his rules. But the Lord administers his covenants. They are imposed by him. And yet, in many cases, they are bilateral and functioning. Sovereignly imposed, but there's, there's something God promises to do, and there's something that he demands of us to do. I think, again, in Exodus 20, and uh, 19 even, into 24, when Israel is making the Mosaic Covenant with the Lord and the people stand at the foot of Mount Sinai and they say in unison, we promise to obey all, we will do all the things the Lord commands us to do. That's not just an aspirational statement. That's the terms of the covenant. And when you get to Jeremiah, Jeremiah goes, remember? Hear, O heaven, hear, O earth. That's the witnesses they summoned then. You didn't keep that covenant. And now the sanctions of that covenant are going to fall upon you because you broke the covenant. Uh, there's a bilateral. We, we can keep covenant. We can break covenant. You know, one of the things our generation so greatly needs for us in all the affairs of our lives is that we would be covenant-keeping pe- covenant people. That as employers, we would honor our contracts. That we, as in, 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 when we take wedding vows, that we would take them very seriously. And we would not break them, even to suffer loss as a result. That when we, when we bring those children to be baptized and we take vows before the Lord, those should weigh upon our heart. Our conscience should be bound by these. That's the way the Lord wants it. His covenant making is a function of his lordship. Well, what does it all mean? Let me close up to just this introduction with just some general comments. To be in covenant with God is to benefit from the covenant headship of another. One of the key ideas, that's why I haven't mentioned it yet tonight, but it's one of the key ideas. It just happens to be what the Bible teaches. I didn't come up with it. The Bible came up with it, that God has organized our covenant relations with him with what's called a federal head. In fact, uh, the language federal, we're, we, America's a federal government. Where people today are saying, you know, America's a democracy. Uh, look, I don't, I'm not here to do politics, but America has never been a democracy. And if you study the history of Athens, you'll be glad that we've never been in a democracy. Democracies are bad. Uh, just ask Alcibiades. But uh, the uh, uh, no, we are a federal organization. So, if the American ambassador signs a treaty with France, or maybe the Ukraine, if we signed it, which we have not done to my knowledge, if we sign a treaty with the Ukraine today and say, if anybody attacks you, America will come to your defense. And let's say hypothetically that Russia were to attack Ukraine and we had signed a treaty, then all of our teenage boys, and these days our girls too probably, would have to go into the army. And someone would say, I didn't sign a treaty with the Ukraine. 
Why do I have to go? Oh, yes, you did sign a treaty. Because that ambassador, when ratified by the U.S. Senate, he represented you. And in a federal system, the members of the community are represented by designated heads. That's the federal, like, actually, it's the Latin word. It's a covenant government. And biblical covenants involve that we stand before God, not merely through our own covenant relationship, but God has established a covenant head, and it's on his fulfillment of the covenant that our salvation either rests or falls. Our first covenant head was Adam, who happens to be our biological head. And so the Bible's very clear. We were all in the loins of Adam. We were, we are biologically descended from Adam. And so when Adam stood in the covenant of works before God and he violated the, the, the covenant of works, the Adamic administration, and he transgressed by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, not only did Adam fall, but you fell. In fact, do you realize that you are guilty before God because of Adam? Even if you, boy, well, you talk about a hypothetical. This is wildly hypothetical. Even if you uh, had, had not sinned. Uh, by the way, this is partly the logic of the virgin birth of Jesus, of course. The, the, the break in that. But if you had not sinned, and of course, that's ridiculous. You have sinned. Right from the get-go, you've been sinning. But David says, I, I was conceived in, in iniquity. You are born guilty because Adam represented you in the covenant of works. And the whole human race, now we've compounded that with innumerable personal sins, but we are represented before God in the, in the Garden of Eden covenant, the covenant of works, by our federal head, Adam. And we stand or fall by his keeping or breaking the covenant. Now, before you say it's not fair, actually, it's enormously kind of God because Adam's a lot, God, a lot better than you and me. <laughs> you think I do better than Adam? No, no, Adam was righteous. <laughs> you and I are not, we, we, we also, we bear the corruption as a result of his fall. But Adam was, an, was he was righteous, but mutably so. He was able to change. He was able not to be righteous. But it actually was a good deal for us to have Adam. But he fell. And the whole human race fell with him. But here's the good news. God appointed a second Adam. The thinking of Jesus as the second Adam, the new Adam. Paul uses that language, particularly in 1 Corinthians and Romans 12, places like that. That we have a new covenant head, and now your relationship with God rests upon your new covenant. If you are in Christ, then you no, you no longer fall with Adam, but you stand with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Romans 5 says, by one man's obedience, the many are accounted righteous. We receive, we sinners receive justification because God's covenant established his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. As our covenant head. Now, again, what, what's the cash value of this? If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then your relationship with God the Father rests upon him. He is, you don't just stand as, a, as a, your own Adam before God. And, you know, how am I doing? Well, badly is the answer, <laughs> to be perfectly frank. But the Christian says, no, my righteousness is not that which I offer to God. My righteousness is that which God provided through his son and which his son offers to me. My salvation 
rest upon my covenant head who think the Lord is no longer Adam. William Perkins said, the entire human race is either hanging from the belt of Adam or hanging from the belt of Christ. And this biblical idea of federal headship, covenant headship, is important to our understanding of salvation. Uh, The Bible teaches not merely what is our obligation to God, but more centrally what God has done for our salvation, reconciling sinners through his son, who is the new Adam. So to be in covenant theology makes me aware. And by the way, I, I have to say, I don't think what I just said is common parlance among evangelical Christians. And I love, I'm an evangelical Christian. I love evangelical Christians. We believe in the Bible, the blood of Jesus, faith in the gospel, all of those sorts of things. And yet people, they've never heard that God has established Jesus to be your federal head, your covenant head. And your relationship with God eternally rests upon his performance, which was thumbs up, by the way, which was a perfect performance. The life you should have lived, he lived on your behalf. The death you deserve to die, he died in your place. You have a covenant head. So when you feel... Boy, I'm a bad Christian, and I, I, I'm a failure. Uh, God must hate me. No, 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 God does not hate you. Now, he may lovingly discipline you as a loving father, but he sees you in Christ. He see, The merit by which you stand before God is the merit of your covenant head. A second of all, to be in saving covenant with God is to be the recipient of his oath-bound promises. God has not only make, he's not only given you promises. You don't just read the Bible. You do read the Bible. And the Bible says, I promise you this. But God has covenanted them with you. He has placed, this is what Hebrews 6 says. He's placed himself under a covenantal bond. So remember passing between the pieces of the covenant? And you think of, you know, of course, when God passes through the pieces with Abraham, it's God alone who passes between them. And what's God saying? He's saying, if you trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and I don't give you salvation, let what happened to those animals be done to me. God places himself under the obligation of fulfilling his promises and he puts the sanction of death upon himself if he does not fulfill them. Now, why does he do that? Not to make himself more faithful. He doesn't need leverage on himself. As Hebrews 6 says, so that we would, have the, the, so that we would be more sure we would have these, these oath-bound promises. He places himself under an oath so that we would, these, this, this would this be like the cable connecting us to God, the anchor for our soul. God has not only given us his promises, he has sovereignly bound himself with a covenant of oath. Uh, in Hebrews 6, 17 to 19, God bound himself not to ensure his own faithfulness, which is hardly needed, but so that we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. Covenant theology, this is, the, this is not some Reformation invention. This is God's covenant theology from the Bible, certainly articulated through the Protestant Reformation. Uh, says to you, if you trust in Jesus Christ and God does not keep his promise of salvation to you, the sanction of death will fall upon him. That's to give us a sure hope. Uh, Then to be in covenant with God is to have received obligations from God as his people. We are the people of God. Uh, Not just just the Presbyterians, not just our church, 
the believers of Jesus Christ are the covenant people of God in this generation. I remember when I was in seminary, we had a professor named Manny Ortiz, and he had a, uh, a mission statement. It wasn't yet a church, but it was a, a missions church in the Latino barrio of Philadelphia. And that was just a really impoverished, a broken down, there's marriage has been broken down, all kinds of social problems. And they met in a gymnasium, and he had a picture of a rainbow with people on it. And it was written on the wall, God has a covenant people in this city. I thought, what a powerful idea in, in an America, and particularly certain segments of it, where, where nobody belongs to anything. You, you, don't even, you don't even know who your father is in many cases. You don't know your parents aren't married together. You don't have community that you can rely upon. And, and the gospel's preached and says, and God takes you into his covenant people. And as a Christian, we are in covenant with God through Jesus Christ, and we are part of his covenant people. He has now reconciled you in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you blame, holy and blameless and above reproach before you if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. And so there are obligations upon us. What are the obligations? Fundamentally, you must believe the gospel. There is a condition to the covenant of grace. If you believe the gospel and persevere in that faith, that's implicit to it, explicit there, then God will, he promises you eternal life. By the way, you go, well, I don't have the ability to believe. Well, that's where grace comes in. Salvation through faith is by grace because God gives the faith. But there are obligations. There's the obligation of believing, and then we enter into covenant with him. There's a, and, and after we believe, we have obligations to God as his people. We're to be godly people. We're to keep our vows. We're, we're, to, we're to worship together as a church. We're to make the Bible our rule of faith and practice. We are to, we are to think of ourselves. And our generation needs us to think this way. In, in, a, in, in an America that's falling apart, I mean, we don't even know what a boy or a girl is anymore. Uh, under the deconstruction of post-postmodernism, the Christian people stand with an open Bible with the gospel of Jesus on our lips and the Holy Spirit in our hearts, and we say that God is a covenant people in this land. That's a hugely important way for us to think. And then to be in saving covenant with God is to enter an eternal relationship of love with God in Christ. Just like that wedding produces the marriage. The Bible begins and ends with a marriage for a reason. Adam and Eve are married in the garden. And how does the Bible end the book of Revelation? The wedding feast of the Lamb. God says, behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. That's what he promised them in Genesis. And Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. Christ loves the church. Christ loves his people. He, he laid down his life for the church. He's sanctifying the church. If we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are his covenant people, and we have entered into a covenant bond of love that will never fail. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Well, I'm going to stop right there. It's kind of the introduction. We're going to look through the biblical covenants. We're going to talk about the implications of it. Uh, I want to give you some suggested readings. Here's three books I would strongly recommend. Uh, o. Palmer Robertson's The Christ of the Covenants. 
I really like the middle one, Peter Golding's Covenant Theology. And our friend uh, Richard Belcher recently wrote a book, the title of which is The Fulfillment of the Promises of God. It's an introduction to covenant theology. If you wanted to do some reading, I would recommend those books. Well, let's pray together. Father, thank you, Lord, for your covenant. Thank you, Lord, that you, you love us and you enacted that love, not just emotionally, but relationally, that you sent your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we might be in him, that we might have union with Christ through faith, and we might be your covenant people, that we might be the bride of the Lord Jesus. And so, Father, help us to rely upon your oath-bound promises. Give us assurance of salvation because your covenant will not fail. Your promises will be kept. But Father, I pray that we also would think of ourselves as a covenant people, both locally, covenant families, yes, but also the church as a covenant people and the churches, Lord, as part of that great covenant people. And as Israel of old was called to do, would you, in Christ and by your Holy Spirit, would you cause us to walk before you in true faith and to your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.